We have the honor, the privilege, the delight to welcome some new members um, to the church this morning. And so I'd like to ask if Carl and Jean Groth would come forward. Is Janice Simmons here? Okay, so Carl and Jean Groth. And any elders that are here this morning, we'd like to um, welcome them and, and give them the charge of electricity. Do you guys see the, TV, the movie Up? Yeah. Carl's the guy on the Up. <laughs> Carl and Jean, do you acknowledge yourself to be sinners in the sight of God and without hope for your salvation except in his sovereign mercy? And do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, and do you receive and depend on him alone for your salvation as he has offered it in the Gospels? And do you now promise and resolve in humble reliance on the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live lives as become followers of Christ Jesus? And do you promise to serve Christ in his church by supporting and participating with this congregation in its service to God its ministry to others to the best of your ability? And do you submit yourself to the government and the discipline of this church and to the spiritual oversight of the elders? And do you promise to promote the unity, the purity, and the peace of this church? Then inasmuch as you have made this profession of faith and having been approved by the elders for active membership, I declare that you are entitled to the full privileges of this congregation and the fellowship of this church, along with all of the the duties and responsibilities for those who profess Christ as their Lord and Savior and worship together with us in this church. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Carl and Jean, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would rest upon them. And as we fellowship together and as we commit to serve you and serve through this church, we ask your blessing on them in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Welcome, Jean. Thank you. Thank you, sir. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you please turn to Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. And you guys, when you, who grew up in a church? Did you ever have uh, sword drills as a kid? You know, to see who could turn to the scripture the fastest? I can turn to the fastest because mine has a bookmark in it. <laughs> Romans chapter 7, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit to um, illuminate the truth of these words to our hearts. We ask you to feed us and nourish us, and now with the word open in our laps and our minds open to your spirit, we pray that you would uh, open truth to us now and uh, change us by the agency of this word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. On August 9th, 1991, after a five-day court-martial that took place in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, uh, Yolanda Hoyt Vaughn, a medical corpsman in the Army, was sentenced to two and a half years in Leavenworth. Um, she was convicted on a charge of desertion to avoid hazardous duty and shirk important service. It seems that on December 30th, 1990, on the eve in which her group was to be uh, deployed to the Persian Gulf, she went AWOL. 
Now, nothing particularly unique about this story except that I could document it. It's just one of a lot of stories like it about somebody that joined the reserves or they joined the National Guard because they, they thought they'd be well paid for a weekend a month, but then they didn't expect or imagine that in reality they were being trained for war. It seems rather odd to me that you'd be in the National Guard or the reserves and not realize that all this training had a purpose of making you ready for battle. Now, I mention that only because there's a very similar way in which many people come to Christ and they're told, you know, if you would just surrender to Jesus and invite him into your heart, then your troubles would go away. The conflict that you're experiencing would, would disappear. If you just accept Jesus, there will be peace in your life. And the reality is then it's not very long before that person realizes that's not true, that when they come to Christ, that's just the beginning of the struggle. And what happens is they... They have heard Jesus warns us about tribulation. He, he reminds us frequently that we have a very powerful enemy and that we are at war with that enemy's kingdom and we are allies of that, that enemy kingdom and, and there will be struggle. But what happens is we meet this struggle and they quickly defect because they did not imagine that they were preparing for war. They were not battle ready. Honestly, that's what happens to a lot of Christians. They just defect because they weren't expecting struggle. In our study of Romans, we're looking at Romans chapter 7. We're going to do things a little bit differently this morning. And we're going to be beginning in verse 14. I realize I've jumped several verses, but follow along. Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, and I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I don't do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my innermost being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Here ends the reading of God's word. Oops. This passage is kind of a poignant reminder. Uh, it gives us an account of the inner struggle that the Christian has, this conflict within himself. And we all realize, because we have all experienced, that this conflict is quite real, and it is a bitter struggle. But there's been a lot of differences of interpretation about what Paul is actually talking about in this text, and it's important for us to understand the differences and land on one of them. Because one interpretation says that Paul is talking about the non-Christian, someone who's not saved. He's referring to himself before he was regenerated. And the other views this as 
Paul is talking in the present tense of being a Christian, and he's talking about the struggle that he has because he hates sin, but he can't seem to break away from it. Now, it's obviously important for us to understand which person that Paul is talking about. Those who believe that Paul is talking about the unbeliever, the guy that's not yet saved, will point out that Paul describes someone as being in the flesh, sold into bondage, verse 14, as having nothing good dwelling in him, verse 18. He describes himself as a wretched man trapped in the body of this death, verse 24. And so they would argue, how could a person be a Christian and have these words describe him? Now, those who contend that Paul is talking about the Christian who's struggling here in chapter 7 would point out that he desires to do what God's law requires, and he hates doing evil. Look at verses 15, 19, and 21. Um, This man is obviously humble before God. He realizes, verse 18, that nothing good dwells in him. Um, He sees sin in him, but he also recognizes That's not all that's in him. Uh, Verses uh, 17, 20, and 22. He gives thanks to Jesus. He serves him with his mind. Verse 25. Now, the apostle has already shown us, clear back in chapter 1, that none of these things would characterize the the unsaved, that the, the, the unbeliever hates God. He hates the truth of God. He suppresses the truth. He willfully rejects Um, God's evidence in the natural things around him. He neither honors God nor gives thanks to God. He's totally dominated by sin. He arrogantly disobeys God, and he encourages other people to disobey God too. So it seems that the person that Paul is talking about is not just a Christian. He is the most spiritual, mature Christian um, because he's, he's measuring himself against what God requires, God's standard of righteousness. The truth is that the closer we get to God, the more we see, the more we realize that uh, we are not what God requires, that we are not pure, we are not holy, and that this, the, the people that have the illusion that they're spiritually mature are, in fact, the ones who are spiritually ignorant. The spiritual believer is sensitive to sin because he understands that when he sins, it grieves the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30, because it dishonors God, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because sin makes us spiritually powerless, 1 Corinthians 9. Um, spiritually, spiritual sin makes us uh, uh, insensitive to sin. It, it robs us of the good things that God wants to do in our, in our lives. It it robs us of joy and salvation. It, it, it inhibits our spiritual growth. It, it brings chastisement from the Lord. It, it prevents us from being a fit vessel for the Lord to, to serve the Lord. The, it, it makes us uh, unable to enjoy Christian fellowship. It, it keeps us from enjoying the Lord's Supper properly, and our persistent sin can even cause us to have our physical life endangered and our health. R.C. Sproul said the apostle, writing in the present tense, talks of a painful ongoing struggle in his life, which is that between walking according to the Spirit and surrendering to the vestigial remnants of the flesh. I can say dogmatically that I find no justification whatsoever for seeing here anything other than the contemporary struggle that the apostle has um, with the effect of his own spiritual progress in sanctification. 
In the 19th century, several churches, particularly in America, following some ideas set forth by John Wesley, developed holiness churches. Contained in their doctrine is the idea of a second work of grace available to all Christians by which they can experience instantaneous holiness. The beginnings of modern Pentecostalism were also tied with this perfectionist idea. Speaking in tongues was considered to be the evidence of this second work of grace. Only in recent times, with the advent of neo-Pentecostals, have adjustments been made to that doctrine. Now, the thinking is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit empowers Christians for ministry, but does not necessarily produce in them an immediate victory over sin. In my entire life and experience as a teacher and a preacher, I have, I have encountered only two people who believe they have received this second work of grace and were therefore sinless. The first was a woman who, in all honesty, you would probably not want to spend much time with. Indeed, she was nasty. She was so filled with the conviction of her perfection, she did not want to hear anything to the contrary. My discussions with her from the Bible were of no avail. She strongly asserted that Paul, in Romans 7, is talking about his pre-conversion uh, condition. The second was a young student, 17 years old, who I met when I was doing my graduate work in the Netherlands. He was an American student from Texas studying as an exchange student in Holland. He had come from a holiness church, and he told me that he had arrived at perfection. When I began to discuss with him the teaching of Romans 7, he was quick to use the standard response that Paul was not speaking in the present tense. I bullied this poor soul by bringing out the Greek New Testament and pointing out passage upon passage where Paul clearly was speaking in the present tense about his present condition. I told him that the sentiments that the apostle expresses in Romans 7 are those that we find, or that we do not find in unregenerate people, such as his love for the law, his great desire to please God. After a lengthy discussion, I was finally able to convince him that, in fact, Paul was talking about his present condition. I assumed the debate with the young man was over, and I asked, what do you think now about your assessment that you have reached a level of perfection? And he said, I'm sad to hear that the apostle had not made it. <laughs> I said, do you really believe that at the age of 17 you've achieved a higher level of sanctification than Paul had reached at the time that he wrote this magnum opus to the Roman church? He looked me straight in the eye and said, yes, I am more sanctified at my age than Paul was when he wrote to the Romans. The young man did not realize how far someone must discount the law of God and exaggerate his own achievement to come to the conclusion that he lives without sin. I pray that by now he has abandoned this idea. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is powerful enough to destroy such illusions of visions and grandeur. The testimony of the greatest saints in history is that, they, is that the longer they are Christians, the more deeply immersed they become in the Word of God and the more acutely conscious they become of their shortcomings. As they grow in grace... They grow in the understanding of our ongoing need for grace. You guys may remember a few months back our church got picketed. We were here for that. Um, we were picketed by other Christians. Now, some of you confronted them coming to the defense of the church and to my defense, and I, I thank you for that. Um, I went down there and I told them that I appreciated their zeal, their commit for, commitment to what they believed was true, and that they were welcome to protest here any time. I asked them if they needed any food or water or coffee or anything else. I found out actually that I knew one of these picketers. She attended our church once before 
She was one who vandalized our church sanctuary at, at Christmas time. Um, she has come in here to talk to me on other occasions because she asserts the fact that she is now without sin, that she has come to the point in her Christian walk where she is now without sin. Now, if you notice their, their posters, they were saying that if you sin, you can't go to heaven, and that our church teaches falsely that you get to go to heaven even if you sin, and so I'm a false teacher. And I asked her then, well, if you believe that you are no longer a sinner, that you no longer have sin, what do you do with the guilt that you feel when you sin every single day? And she just shrugged her shoulders. I'll come back to that in a minute. Let's look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So again, beginning in verse 14, Paul's talking about this conscious, determined battle that's raging within him that he has against sin, and that it is still, even at, at, at the apostles' level of, of, of maturity, he's still battling this ongoing presence of sin. It's an enemy that's within him, but it's an enemy that is no longer his master. And it is this struggle that he have, which will continue to go on until he finally stands before the presence of Christ. And that's the point, that the struggle will go on all through life. As long as the believer remains on earth in this mortal, corrupted body, not only will we struggle with sin, but the law itself continues to be an ally to us, not an enemy. Um, the, we, 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 we treasure the law of God because it tells us who God is, what God is like, what God requires from us. And it reminds us that in order to have grace that comes through faith, we have to first realize how desperate our situation is. But the law continues to be valuable and precious to us. And that's why the psalmist would say that your word I have treasured up in my heart that I might not sin against you. Then the, the more that we realize how precious the law is, we begin to realize that it is a light unto our feet, a, a lamp unto our, our path. God's word is, is precious to us more so as new believers, as new covenant Christians than old covenant Christians. One, because we have more of God's word to tell us what God is like. And two, now we have the presence of the Holy Spirit, this indwelling, not only to illuminate the truth to us, but to enable us to walk in it. So the, the law, Paul says, is holy, it is good, it is righteous, it is true. I have a good Christian friend who is a, uh, an evangelist and a church planter, but he's terribly ignorant in the Word of God. And he has come to the conclusion that every time in the Bible you find the word law, that equals bad. So law is bad, grace is good. Law is something you need to get away from, you need to escape from, you need to jettison, and grace is something good that you need to embrace. The point is, the law is good. It tells us what God wants. It tells us who God is. And it tells us our desperate need for grace. Now, every well-taught, honest Christian is aware of the fact that what God wants and how frequently we fall back into this disturbing pattern of sin. The difference is that the Christian knows he cannot be happy with sin. He cannot be content because he realizes that this is contrary not only to what God wants, it is contrary to the new nature that the Holy Spirit has produced within us. We realize that when we sin, 
we grieve the Holy Spirit, and we don't want to do that. And so while we continue to sin, we hate sin, and we quickly repent of it. Verse 15, I don't understand my own actions, for I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin who indwells within me. I have had the honor to golf several times with Terry Johnson. You know, you learn a lot about a guy on the golf course. Now, I don't want to name names, but apparently one of us is rather lax about how many strokes it takes to get the ball into the hole and <laughs> does not accurately record the number of strokes one has taken. I don't want to name any names. <laughs> also, it strikes me that if you golf, this should be your life verse. I, I do not understand what I do because the thing that I want to do, I do not do. And I do the thing, I don't do the thing I want to, and I do the thing that I don't want to. <laughs> anyway, that's absolutely true, Terry, everything I said. <laughs> It is. <laughs> Paul's expressing here some confusion. He's, he's, uh, he's perplexed. It's not an abstract theological mystery that he's dealing with. It's not, he's not trying to root out the, the, the nature of human will and free will and all that stuff. This is real basic stuff that he's dealing with. He says, I don't understand myself. I don't understand why I do the things I don't want to do. I don't understand why this, this conflict with, within me. It's something that all of us actually relate to quite well. You know, we understand the struggle because he's describing every one of us. And the closer you get to the Lord, the more mature you are in your walk, the more you realize how intense this struggle is and how confusing it is that you sin, and you think, why did I do that? You know, that's not who I want to be. That's not who I've been called to be. We realize before we came to Christ, we only had one nature. We, we could sin. We felt okay about that. We were just doing what we felt we needed or wanted to do. But now that we have this new nature, there's a struggle within us because it's a struggle between two contrary natures, two contrary wills. There's this the war that's going on, and it penetrates the very deepest recesses of our soul, and it lasts through all of life until we are finally glorified in heaven. And that's a universal experience of every Christian that Paul is describing for us here. Now, Jesus reminds us that there's this continued battle in our hearts between our, our good and, and evil, between our, our wills to do what God wants and, and the wills that we have to disobey. It should not be a mystery to us that we're even talking about this subject. But if we hate the things that we do, we must also like the things that we hate because we do it. There must be some attraction to the things that we hate, that we keep going back to. Though we delight in pleasing God, the reality is that when push comes to shove, when the temptation is actually before us, we choose to sin. Because at that moment, 
We want the thing that we are sinning about more than we want to be obedient to Christ. You, no one can say, the devil made me do it. Remember Flip Wilson, you older folks, you know? No one's going to be able to say when they stand before the judgment that they were compelled to sin, that Satan made them sin. No, you sin because you want to. We can't make a plea that, that some outside force caused us to do that. Every sin that we commit proceeds from our internal desire. The new man, the, the regenerate man, has this desire to please God, to serve God, to walk humbly before him. But we still have these vestigial remnants of the old man that is doing war. There's this conflict continually within us. But the moment that we sin, in that moment, it's more desirable for us to sin than it is to obey. And that's why we say we do the very thing we hate, but we like the thing that we hate at the same time. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh, for I have desired to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I don't want, for I do, for I don't, I, I do not want what is, what I keep doing, if I, this is confusing. <laughs> now, if I, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. So Paul, he begins by saying, I realize there's nothing good that dwells in me. If you stop there, you would be wrong. Because obviously there is something good that dwells within Paul. The Holy Spirit dwells within Paul. And so Paul makes a real clean distinction here. He says, I realize there's nothing good that dwells, in with me, that dwells within me. I mean in the flesh. Now, when he talks about the nothing good that dwells in his flesh, he doesn't mean in his body. Again, going back to the, those who believe in perfectionism, they like to distinguish between the, the spirit and the body, or a three-part, the, the body, the soul, and the spirit. And their argument is that all sin, once you've reached this level of perfectionism that you, you haven't reached, but I may have, <laughs> once you reach that level, all sin is done in the body. And so the spirit remains somehow isolated from the sin because the spirit doesn't sin, the body sin. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about not the flesh, the, the stuff that your body, that you dwell in. He's talking about the fallen man. He's simply saying the fallen man is corrupt. The spiritual man delights to do what's what uh, pleases God. And of course, you know, there's several vice lists that Paul gives us. Uh, Romans 1, 24, 31, Galatians 5, uh, 2 Timothy 3. But in those lists of vices, Paul gives not only physical sins, sin that's done in the body, but also mental sins. And, and really, the, the mental sins are the more grievous of the sins. From Romans uh, uh, chapter 1, he talks about greed, envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, slander, arrogance, boastfulness. Those are mental, not physical sins. In Galatians 5, idolatry, hatred, jealousy, rage, ambition, dissension, factions, envy. From 2 Timothy 3, uh, love of self, boastfulness, 
proud, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, slanderous, conceited. So Paul's obviously not making a bifurcation between my body sins, but my spirit doesn't. Obviously, these these mental sins are, are more grievous than the physical ones. I mean, look at Jesus when he was when, when he was confronting sin in the world. You know, he was very gracious towards people who had um, physical sins, adultery, uh, uh, prostitution. You know, he was very gracious towards these people, but very harsh towards those who had arrogance and self-sufficiency and, and pride. So you look at what what does Jesus think are the most egregious sins? He's not talking about the sins of the body or the committed only in the body. But now he uses the phrase, uh, or when he uses the phrase, I, I realize that no, no good thing dwells in my flesh. He's also insinuating the, the antithesis of that, isn't he? Because he's saying there's no good that dwells in my flesh, but there is good also that dwells within him. He, he realizes his, his, his actions don't match his passion or his intention. He realizes there's a, there's a disassociation between what he does and what he wants, but what he wants communicates to us that there is a new life within him that wants to serve and please God. He wants to do the right thing. There's this new nature that even though he, he sins, he still is drawn to do what is good and right. The things that Paul wants to do... Um, uh, he, he's frustrated about doing them. So he says, I, I, I know, therefore, that there's nothing that good indwells with me because I know that there's, it's no longer I, my, my will, who's choosing to sin. It's the reality that I am still a sinner, that sin still dwells within me. He realizes that sin still infects the very core of his being. He honestly the most holy, righteous thing you could possibly do is tainted by your sin. It infects everything. He's not trying to absolve himself of responsibility. He's just pointing out that he does these things because he realizes that, that sin indwells in him. But that's not what defines who he is. What defines him is this new man. What defines him is the man that wants to please God, and that's why he's frustrated with it. You know, the, 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 the old man still has remnants, but he's quite confident in the ultimate reality that he will eventually triumph over sin because the Holy Spirit has been given to him. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now John Stott interestingly says, here's a fourfold double reality, four, four pairs. Now there's the two egos, the two eyes, the capital I of the person. There's the, there's the eye that wants to do good, but evil dominates the second eye. And there's two laws in verses 22 and 23. Paul delights in the law of God, but he sees the law of sin waging war against him and capturing him. And then there's these two cries, verse 24 and 25, the cry for deliverance, who will deliver me? And the cry of joy, thanks be to God. And finally, there's two sorts of servitude. 
with the mind he wants to serve God, with the flesh he realizes he serves the law of sin. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This adjective wretched means to be miserable, to be distressed, to have this this self-loathing. And Paul has come to the end of himself and he cries out. This is a desperate cry. I am such a, a wretched man. Doesn't that remind you of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus was saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you see the parallel there? When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's saying, blessed are the bankrupt spiritually. Blessed are the wretched. So in reality, when Paul comes to this complete point of despair where he says, wretched man that I'm self, he, that I am, he's actually come to the point where he can be uh, helped, um, where he realizes his condition before God. Um, and so Paul, although he's already said it, he, he, he recognizes that sin is, is beyond our comprehension. He says, I don't understand it. Well, you know what? You don't have to actually understand it. You know, so many times you talk about somebody struggling with sin, and we go to all this effort to understand the sin. You don't have to understand the sin. You have to understand how the problem is solved. You just have to understand you're in a dilemma. Uh, Richard, uh, or no, excuse me, Bob Deffenbaugh wrote, I know a young man who was converted to, to Jesus Christ. He was a homosexual before his conversion, and he also practiced homosexual, homosexuality as a Christian. He found the solution in the cross of Jesus Christ. In speaking to a group of ministers, he said something very important. He said, don't try to understand, and please don't try to identify with me in terms of my homosexuality. You cannot and should not understand. You don't need to understand. Identify with me on the level that we all struggle with, sin due to the weakness of the flesh. That's absolutely right, isn't it? You don't have to unravel it. You don't have to understand it. The solution to sin is not to be found in the understanding of the sin. The solution is to be found in the provision that God has made for us to overcome the sin. In the cross of Christ. In the teaching of the Word. In the enabling of the Holy Spirit. See, that's where the solution comes for us to overcome sin. Let's, let's receive that from Christ. Realize we all struggle. Now, I know many of your struggles, and it's, it is a desperate struggle, but the solution is for us to turn to the cross and to, to avail ourselves of the righteousness which God has provided um, through Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul tells of a similar incident he had when he first got saved. R.C. Sproul was a smoker for a very long time, and he writes, Within the first few months of my conversion, I remember sitting in a local college grill smoking, and our math professor, a Christian, was sitting across from me. He took a straw and held it out as if it were a cigarette and put it to his lips and pretended to inhale and exhale. He said, let me tell you about my experiences with the Holy Spirit. Of course, that was his way of rebuking me for my failure to clean up my life as a new Christian. Because of my smoking, I was on the lookout for instant sanctification. I tried everything. One evangelist gave me an idea. If you want to stop smoking, put a picture of Jesus in your cigarette pack. Every time you want to smoke, take out the pack of cigarettes and look at that picture of Jesus and say, I love you, Jesus, and then you will not be tempted to smoke. I tried it. 
By three o'clock in the afternoon, nothing was more repugnant, repugnant to me than that picture of Jesus, and I had to remove it. I cannot tell you how serious that struggle was in my soul. I would come to the text of Scripture, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and I would think, I cannot do that. I cannot do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I asked people to lay hands on me. I had a holiness minister pray for the second work of grace and my instant sanctification. It didn't work. Somebody prayed in tongues. Another minister gave me a nail and told me to put it in my pocket. And he said, every time you think about smoking, think of that death of Jesus. Pull out that nail and think of what Jesus did for you. That lasted a few hours until I threw the nail away. It took 25 years from the day I became a Christian till the first time I went 24 hours without smoking. It took another 10 years to go a month without smoking, and it was at least another, another 10 years after that to get rid of it altogether. All that time, I had listened to the accusation of Satan. I struggled with my spiritual state because I had an addiction to the flesh, and I simply could not get rid of it. I know I'm not alone. In a sense, Although it should not be the case, it becomes the normal dimension of the Christian life. We are all faced with some besetting sin that we bring before God and seek to get rid of. Sooner or later, we need to hear the words, my grace is sufficient for you. And I don't mean to cheapen the oft-used expression, I feel your pain, but I bet every one of us can feel the anguish that Paul is expressing right here. I bet we all understand that pain because you know, we, got, we understand the war that is raging within us. And I can't tell you why sometimes the Lord allows us to struggle for years with our sin before we get liberation from it. But I realize it often does. I also understand that at every moment, God offers his grace and it's there for us to overcome no matter what the sin is. My grace is is sufficient for you. Now, Paul's not writing these words because he's trying to excuse himself or still less to uh, encourage it. He's, he's thinking about the victory that can and ultimately will be ours. He wants us to achieve victory in our struggle against sin. But the point here is that the victory that we desperately want and that we're expecting to be instantly removed from us often takes years because the Lord wants us to struggle. He wants us to be engaged in the battle. He doesn't want us to think that there's some secret formula or some spiritual wand that you could be waved over and suddenly your cravings and your disobedience would go away. Now, Paul next asks a question that he already knows the answer to. He says, who will set me free from this body of death? And then he makes it clear that the cause of his frustration is this body of death. Uh, it is reported that near Tarsus, where Paul grew up, there was an ancient tribe that actually performed a uh, practice where if a person was convicted of first-degree murder, they would take the corpse of the murdered man and lash it or chain it to the living man, the murderer, and he would have to wear that corpse on his body until he died or the corpse rotted away and fell off. 
I think Paul would have certainly been very much aware of that. Actually, in looking for documentation, I found that in the Aeneid, written between 29 and 19 BC, Virgil accuses Mezzanidas, the king of the Etruscans, of doing this very same thing. So Paul was probably thinking of this awful form of justice, a torture really, when he's expressing this desire to be free from the body of this death. And we get it. Because we realize, you who are believers, you have these two natures. You have this new man living within you that desires to please God. But you are continually dragging around the, the rotting, fetid corpse of the old man. You know what that's like. Now notice that Paul doesn't ask, after he lays out this problem for us, what do I do? What action do I need to take? His question is not, what do I do, but who will rescue me? And then without hesitation, he reminds us, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, later in uh, chapter 8, he will say, I, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. As frustrating and as painful as this struggle is that we believers have, it is nothing compared to the great glory that finally awaits us and the guarantee that the struggle that we have now, we will be victorious over, us, over it. All Christians find themselves doing what they don't want to do and not being able to do the thing that they so desperately want to do. In fact, the more mature you are as a Christian, the more you realize the struggle actually grows stronger and stronger and not weaker. And those that struggle the most and those that have the most vigorous battle against sin are not the immature Christians, it's the mature ones. The, the hardest battle are waged by God's saints, and we need to be ready for the battle. C.S. Lewis said, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. The triumph of grace is ultimately assured to us, regardless of how badly you think you're doing in the battle right now, or how much you feel a despair that you will ever get victory over your signature sin, uh, no matter how much you feel like you can't continue to bear up under the struggle. It's the very knowledge that we have ultimate victory that will enable us to continue to fight on, and that's what keeps us ready for battle. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'll help us as mature Christians to realize that we are Christians, we are saved, that we have this new nature, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's the very presence of that struggle, the failure to sin and the rushing to your throne of grace that reminds us our salvation is sure and secure in you. Father, I pray evermore, help us to turn to you for grace, not to find some quick solution out of it. Help us to be reminded every time we fall that there is forgiveness, there is grace. And however desperately wicked our sin is, 
You look down at our broken covenant with you. You look down on our treason only by looking past and through the blood of Jesus Christ, which is shed for us. Remind us that we are considered righteous even though we know we are not. That is the mystery of your redemption. That is the glory of your grace. That is our testimony now and through eternity. Christ's grace is sufficient for me. But in the meantime, help us to push forward with greater resolve that we will live lives to please you, live lives that are a testimony of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit within. To this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.